This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. to the Habitat Podcast, the podcast for wildlife habitat management, hunting strategy, and land stewardship. And now, your host, Jared Van Hees. Welcome to the Habitat Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Van Hees, and we are here to become better habitat managers. Together, learn, be better habitat managers. What's up, guys? Jared here. Welcome back. Habitat Podcast. We have a great episode for you here today we have my good friend todd shippy from empire land management over in wisconsin and man this guy knows his stuff we haven't caught up in over a couple years um together over a podcast and todd has been uh a great account to follow on instagram i learned a lot from him and as you can tell in this conversation the guy has a wealth of knowledge and just tons of kind of under the radar tips and tricks that just he just slips in there one after another very informative podcast we're covering you know how to cure the october lull of buck trails versus doe trails we talk about a big marsh project where he's literally working in a marsh uh the top three things people can screw up on their property right now with hunting season just around the corner and how to avoid that uh his three favorite tactics when accessing your property um we talk about dozer work excavators we talk about planting um you know food plot strategy shapes and kind of how he compartmentalizes these food plots we talk about bridges we talk about invasives we talk about all kinds of good stuff and it was just uh, a nice conversation todd uh, if you listen to this really happy you came on thank you so much it was great catching up with you buddy um guys awesome episode todd shippy from wisconsin just getting fired up over here for deer season we are about i don't know eight nine ten days out from uh opener here in michigan i will be out i believe that sunday evening the first 
Then I got to work that week, do a bunch of stuff. So probably won't make it out till the weekend when we go on our bow camp um, with the Deer Hunter podcast guys and, and everybody else up north that first weekend. So thank you all for coming back. I appreciate the Habitat podcast listenership. You guys are the best. Um, we are sending out free decals for reviews. Sent. I'm going to read this review right here. Uh, it's by Jiffy CWC 1999 podcast for the 365 hunter habitat podcast dives into all things involving managing hunting properties, big and small. For those of us that don't put our equipment away and not think about hunting until the leaves turn colors. This is the podcast for you. This lifestyle is 365 days per year obsession and it fills the void. Whenever you get downtime to listen to a very well put together podcast involving our outdoor passion. There is no off season. Jiffy, thank you so much for the great review. Please email me your name and contact information or address, I should say. Email us at info at habitatpodcast.com and I will get you a brand new HP decal sent in the mail. Guys, we have another one here by Jay Schlau. Great podcast. Listener since 2020 and I rarely miss an episode. Very informative podcast for the landowner slash habitat manager who is working hard to improve their property to hunt quality deer. Jay, you nailed it, buddy. Jay Schlau, thank you so much for the five-star review. Guys, if you left us a review and we haven't sent you a decal yet, please reach out, info at habitatpodcast.com. As you can see, um, iTunes doesn't give you the real name. They give you some kind of username, which I have to track down and find, which I can most of the time. But if you're waiting for a decal, let me know. Uh, we have a few hundred here ready to send out. So moral of the story, thank you to the loyal listenership for sending in uh, these great reviews. If you are interested in leaving a great review, all you have to do is scroll down. There's a link below. It takes probably 15 to 30 seconds to type out something nice and hit bam and, and you're done. So it really helps us a lot, helps us find new people out there or helps, I should say, helps new people find us in the podcast world. Um, there's a lot of podcasts out there. So I appreciate very, very much all you guys coming back and listening once again here at Habitat Podcast. Guys, we have a brand new shipment of hats in. I'm going to get those on the website here pretty soon. I want to make sure everybody who wants a hat can grab a hat off our website. I'll have those uploaded here shortly. And I just want to thank everybody. Uh, you know, and hopefully all your, your projects are, are wrapped up. I know I'm going to do a little bit of some overseeding. I don't even need to, but I have a trail camera that tipped over on a tree. I got to go fix that. So I'm going to go hit that out there um, and just check on some plots on a local property near me here. Um Really, you know, I just hope everybody's shooting their bow. Hope everybody's getting ready. I know some guys are already out hunting. Todd in this episode, he's already got a doe down. Brian, he already shot a doe the other night in Pennsylvania. So season is here, guys. And I just really appreciate uh, everybody. And I wish you all a good luck opener if you haven't opened already. If you are new to the Habitat Podcast, we have HabitatPodcast.com. has everything up there. All of our partners link to our YouTube channel, our Instagram channel. Um, we have a bunch of videos on YouTube, guys. If you're interested, go check them out, you know, and just if you if you talk to any of our sponsors, tell them you heard about them at Habitat Podcast and, uh, you know, give their products a try. They support us and um, we don't work with anybody that does not make a great product. So I want to thank our partners, United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties, Downburst Cedars, Acres.com, Morse Nursery, Packer Max Cult to Packers, Exodus Outdoor Gear, and Vitalize seed company if you guys are wondering if you should buy or sell property right now in michigan be sure to get a hold of chad thalen over at midwest lifestyle properties i've been friends with chad for a long time he's been a partner of the podcast for quite a few years now and he just proves to be a resource to me over and over again chad has been helping me 
understand the real estate side of things, answer any questions I have, help me see through some of the technical stuff that I might not be trained for in this in this area, and just knows ground, knows habitat, programs to get stuff, put it on your ground, the government can pay for, all around very knowledgeable guy over at Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Guys, if you're looking to buy or sell a piece of recreational ground, I mean, he even sells ground with farms and, and houses on it too. But if you're looking to buy a piece of ground or sell yours, give Chad a call. Chad is on Facebook at Chad Thalen, Land Specialist, Midwest Lifestyle Properties. You can also find him on our website at Habitat Podcast. The market is still hot for rec properties. And I would call Chad right away to get your property listed and sold. If you're on the lookout for a brand new property, again, Chad has his fingers in a lot of different circles and can find a piece for you. Check him out, Chad Thalen, Midwest Lifestyle Properties on Facebook and at HabitatPodcast.com. Yeah, we were just talking about how the drought conditions you're dealing with in the Wisconsin area and my friend in, in Illinois, a couple friends there, and even West Michigan are drought, drought, drought again. Uh, we're talking about how we hope that's not the new norm, right? Right. I hope that's not the new normal. This is just a point in time. And and in conjunction with the drought, what's so frustrating is the extreme temperatures. A lot of times it doesn't rain, but you're not dealing with 100 degree days in March, 90 degree days in March and April. That's what really makes it difficult. And and when you have those high of temperatures, you don't even get dew on the ground in the morning. So besides no rain, you you get nothing. There's arid climate and uh it's difficult, you know, and that's a time all you can do as land managers, and I've seen you guys have done it, um, is you have to take a lemon and make lemonade. So you get down into the marshes and get down into lowlands that are normally inaccessible until fall and create some habitat. It's a good opportunity to create habitat that you normally uh, can't get in there and do some work that is going to pay off if the if the floods come back or if the heavy rains come back and the water tables come back up to normal. Um, they're going to really pay off by building little islands out there that you could put some trees on that'll be buck bedding in the future. Um, I just had a project of a large patch on a piece of property. Um, there's a river that runs through it and at least 300 yards on each side of the river, probably 15 acres of land was just a reed canary wasteland of nothing. Um, you know, reed canary it lays down, it's invasive, a uh, little bit of fawn bedding in it, but that's it. Um, it's just like a moonscape. So I approached it in two different ways. And this works for reestablishing cattails or reestablishing a wet metal. Um, first, I burned it in the spring, a good portion of it. But I was a little bit, the window closed of the opportunity because it was so dry. The window closed in that I could feel safely to burn it without starting the peat on fire underneath it. So I burned as late as you possibly could to get it dry. Uh, so it was dry enough. But then the high heat, the extreme wind and temperatures dried it too much. And if you get a peat fire burning in a marsh, I mean, that could burn for 10 years. <laughs> There's not enough gallons of water to put it out. It'll burn 30 feet down the ground. So how we adapted to that is we had a farmer come in and it was just flat enough that he could cut it for marsh hay wow. um, and round bale it. Now, he didn't like it. He said, I, I really don't want to go in there again because that was just rough enough that it's not good for farm machinery but he did get a whole bunch of round bales off of it that he needed because of the drought. Um, otherwise, in a in a year where they don't need it, those round bales work perfect for access and for travel corridors. You just leave them sit there, stack them up in certain areas, and they're really a nice a, a nice thing to do. So 
we did, we had them take it off. I let it green up again, sprayed it off with Roundup, um, let it green up again. Normally, you would let it green up again and hit it another time. Um, this year, it never rained. So the seed that, you know, there's years and years, millennia of seeds, uh, reed canary in there. So usually it takes like three in a year and then you can do something that wasn't, it just didn't work this year that way because uh, of lack of rain. So I came in with uh, a tree spade on a skid steer with tracks and we took some crack willow. People are familiar with crack willow. Those are the small willows that you see growing on the edges of rivers and edges of marsh. We took those and uh, I, I built a travel corridor through it. Um, and I just posted on Instagram this morning how it worked out. Now, normally you can drop willows in just willows, not other forms of trees, and just take a chainsaw and cut the tops right off. Because really, you just want the roots in there. And by cutting the tops off, by pruning them, you get exponential growth the following year coming up in because it, it gives the roots a chance to establish. But on these, I left I left them on top because we wanted some an instant travel corridor. And it was in between two buck bedding areas. And I wanted to create that, that rut funnel. Um, so we left them on and I put this morning, every one of them are rubbed. It instantly worked. I mean, and not just rubbed, but absolutely shredded. So we got to get a camera out there and see what's going on. But uh, I was really happy to see that. And then in that same travel corridor, I we added some tamaracks. Now those are caged and I'm going to build some humps out there and put some swamp white oak on and those will be caged. Those can't take the trauma from a from a buck rubbing on them, but the willows, I mean, I think that's what God designed them for is for deer to rub on them. They love rubbing them and they can take it. I would agree with that. And when you're, and I, I saw your Instagram this morning, it, are you, is this kind of the, the big marsh project you? Yes. Okay. Yeah, that's the big marsh that. project. Okay. I have it. Where are you making this, this buck travel corridor? And I guess before that, even you, you burned off the reed canary. You sprayed it. No, you had them. You had them come in and, and bail it, and then you kept spraying to kill it. Yes, exactly. Okay. And then what's the and next step to to establish whatever's next? Well, I seeded turnips up there for the out there for this year, but just I thought they'd compete a little bit, but it hasn't rained in so long. But next week's supposed to be some rain coming in, so they should blow up. And then what I do is next year, um, as soon as it greens up, I'll either burn it or spray it because there's enough there from from enough trash there that I'll be able to do a burn. And, and a lot of times in a year, it didn't work out there the way the weather was this year, but a lot of times what I'll do in a year is I'll burn it early when it's it's a little bit wet underneath, but it takes the top of it off. It makes for a less exciting fire. It takes the top of it off, and then the wind and the sun will, will get the lower part dry, and then you do a double burn. So you can burn it again twice in one wow. year. That works really good. Then green up, then smoke it off. So on the other side of the river, where I'm working on the same swamp, it's a little bit higher. And just from the burn and the first chemical treatment, all the wet metal came back. Goldenrod, purple, okay. uh, purple fox glove, all this beautiful habitat came up. And it's just, you can just see how gorgeous it's going to be. Now, as it went down, I, I'm assuming that's where the reed canary was there longer. It's going to take longer for that re to redevelop. And it's going to take some more burning and uh probably a couple more chemical treatments but that is the goal that that's what comes back and then in conjunction um with that i'll i'll plant uh some uh shrub seeds and and uh dogwood seeds all that kind of stuff and get it going awesome. so uh I, I, those are I, fun I, projects yeah yeah that's i mean 
Reaching is a pain. I mean, I've hit it with Roundup before and smoked it right away, planted turnips in it, like you just mentioned, and had really good success. Um, but to try to get anything else established in that reed canary, you gotta you gotta knock it out. I mean, yeah, so you have to hit it with uh, you know it works so in the wet meadow part where the broadleaves come back, but the canary, you know, the canary will also come, but you have to remember canary grass strength is its weakness. It comes up first before anything else, like all cousies and grasses. So you can hit it with Roundup before anything and not phase anything up. When you hit it with Roundup, if you use a pre-emerge um, on it, it can it can stop anything from growing. And then it it that the reed canary knows don't bother growing anymore because they're not going to make seed and the broadleaves will come up through it. So awesome. pretty effective, pretty effective. And uh, and keep in mind, guys that are struggling with reed canary where it's where it's smoked off cattail marshes, which I love cattail. Everybody loves cattail marshes, deer pheasant everything um cattails are roundup resistant because they're so far down in the water so not not in a drought year they're not as roundup resistant but in a normal year so you can spray roundup over the canary grass and the cattails will grow exponentially uh, so it's a really good way i've had great success reestablishing cattail marshes with just that tactic burn green that's up spray. yeah that's a great tip i love cattails uh deer love cattails you know pheasants like you pheasant, mentioned turkey everything get away from the predators. Um, Todd, before we go any further, I think we should probably cover who the heck you are and, and I'll, I'll cover you on the intro as well, but let's get a quick, you know, quick and dirty version of, of who Todd Shippey is, where you're at, what you're doing, everything. And you've been on before that was episode uh, 122. Uh, yes. Episode 122, April of 2021. About a years ago. Was, yeah. That was years ago. That was a fun, that was fun. That was a great one. I listen. I remember yeah. listening to that driving down to, uh, my buddy Mike's in Ohio to go do a land plan. I listened, I re-listened to our episode uh, after we did it. That was a good one. That was fun. Yeah, I thought I thought it was fun. So I I own uh, Empire Land Management. Um, it's uh, I I do. You know, there's there's different kinds of land managers. There's guys that um, run around and just punch in food plots. You have to say where you're going to put it, or, or if the landowner was where he's got a forty horse tractor, a tiller, and and some seed. And then there's guys that just make the maps, and then. Um, I've got a different thing. Now, the guy with the 40 horsepower tractor, that's a great, I mean, he's very valuable to somebody who just has a map and he knows what he wants done. Um, those are valuable guys. There's room for everybody. I'm, I would never knock anybody. And then there's the guys that make the maps. Those are very important guys for people that have the equipment and they're just not sure how to start. And they may not end up how the map is, but boy, that's a great starting point. And uh, it gets you pointed in the right direction. In my business right now, I'm not even taking. I haven't even taken new customers in in two years now. I, I uh, lately I could hire somebody just to say no, <laughs> just answer the phone and say no. Um, but uh, so my mine is I do the mapping, I scope out the property, and then I basically immerse myself in that property and make it the absolute best deer hunting property that you can until. I get to the point where the owner knows the property better. Initially, I'm going to know the property better than them for a couple of years and share all the information with them. And then ultimately, the property owner knows it better than I do. And that's when I know when they start saying, Todd, I think we need to do this over here. And they're right. And I think, OK, you know, this is a this is a complete win. So, uh, yeah. So for now, I've been on the properties because uh, I can't get anybody to fire me. I always say, you know, you, I think you got it now. Uh, it should be good. And I said, no, you're coming back next year. So um, <laughs> a lot of fun, good people. I work with good people, meet a lot of people. Um, in the in the winter times, I'll still do, um, you know, consulting. And I 
enjoy going out and doing seminars for some of my clients um, cool. in areas. I'll do seminars. It's always fun to meet people and and uh, share some information. And uh, you always learn you always learn new tricks too from from people. So and and you're located in Wisconsin, right? Yep, Fond du Lac, Wisconsin, um, and, right on the bottom of Lake Winnebago. It's a big okay. fishing tournament there every year, walleye weekend. Um, in between Milwaukee and Green Bay. Yeah, I know where that's at. And are you still doing trade shows and whatnot? Do you do any of that helping out? Yeah, I do Iowa and I did the Dells this year. I always like the Iowa show. Um, they walk around with racks with green ribbons on them that any other state they'd be like blue ribbons. And I'm like, how did you come in with a green ribbon with a rack like that? But um, and they're nice people. Those Iowa people are the nicest people, and uh, it's just such an enjoyable show. And then uh I, I do the Madison one, but I think this year I, I'm going to skip that one and just do uh, uh, there's a deer fest that's in August that's close to home. So um, and I love running all the other vendors at those shows. You know, we have a, a group of guys and have a pretty good time after hours and stuff. Oh, man, I, I was at the Iowa show for a, for a half a day. I wish I would have known. I would have really tracked you, down. Yeah. Tracked you down, man. I'm always I'm just down from Whitetail Adrenaline, but okay. right where you come in the main doors. Yeah, I always give Jared a hard time. Yeah. Oh yeah. man. Darn. I missed that opportunity. Um, no, yeah. You're so you, you've been doing this quite a while and I always love your Instagram cause you're offering tips and tricks and, and advice and not just, you know, a shot of a, a food plot, which we do every now and then too. Um, it's, it's a good page to follow. So I urge everybody to check that out, but with everything right now, I, I had an idea and you're already, you're already hunting, right? Like you already. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. I shot one. I always like to shoot a doe. Um, you know, you know, you got to do doe control or herd, herd control. And I always like to shoot an opening weekend here because um, I take it and I get my sausage back for gun hunting. So I already have some, I already have sausage to share for fresh, for deer, for deer camp. So, and how, tell me about that shot. Look, you sent me a picture. Look like you, you pinwheel. They're using a stick bow too. Yeah. Yeah. I started, I hunt with a recurve. Um, I, uh, all old ones. Um, I've got one, my buddy. So one of the best hunters artist athlete best friend of mine that i've ever known this guy is so talented and he's got ms now he can't do anything and uh, it's just a shame so i help his kid out a lot with uh he's got a, a youtube channel which i really wish i could think of the name of it right now off the top of my head i can't It'd be a great time to share it um but he uh so i've got his old bow from and his dad's bow, and then a number of other old bows that people give me but last year i shot a five and a half year old um mature buck with his bow that he remembers going to Kmart with his dad and buying for his dad was mad because they didn't have the, the cheaper one. He had to get a grizzly, a bear grizzly. It's got the same limb socks on it, the original quiver, everything. And uh, so I use it just to honor him. And uh, I shot a nice mature buck with it last year. So that was a pretty big thrill. And I, I like, I, I don't knock it. I mean, I've got clients who use from crossbows to, to, uh, compound bows and any kind of weapon is fine by me it's just what i choose to do i like it and uh and besides i'm 60 and uh my vision for seeing through a peep sight it's like i'm looking through a bifocal and down and all that so it's actually i feel like i'm cheating because i've got it dialed in um pretty good the instinctive shooting so it makes it uh actually more effective for me you know it's funny you say that i'm 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 not 60 and i feel like my eyes through a peep sight are also getting challenging especially towards the end of the hunt and i went i went um no peep sight last year for the first time on a compound and nope. um it was very weird at first but you get the muscle memory the same anchor points and everything else and i'm i'm shooting great with it 
Um, you just kind of look through the string. Uh, yeah, I just keep my I touch my nose on the string as well yep. as my anchor point with my release. So I have two points of contact, and then I yeah, I just got to remember to keep my eye. I mean, there's a little bit of variation that can happen with your eye, uh, kind of close to the string. Um, I don't look on the other side of it. I don't look straight behind it. I just I'm just offside a little bit. See, um, and I think that would be a great advantage for low light conditions or or yeah. like you know blind, especially in a blind where it's you know it gets dark before it's well it's still legal shooting time. I mean that's got to be a heck of an advantage for you. Yeah, I only shot one year so far with it last year, but drilled her out of the blind with my son. And um, yeah, I'm going to keep going down that route. I know, awesome. I don't know if I'd recommend that for going and shooting, you know, total archery challenge and, and whatnot. I'm I'm not that great at it yet, but I think, uh, I feel like some of it might have to go back to that instinctive looking down like you're doing with the with the recurve or, or tread bow. I don't think it's exactly the same, but maybe just some of the repetitiveness, you know? Yeah. I talk to that a lot with uh, Jared from Whitetail Adrenaline. Our booths are close to each other, and he's he shoots instinctive, and uh, we do a lot of the same things. And uh, but he's got he does a control chop process, and later on he goes to just and uh, if you ever get a chance to talk to him about it, I won't take up too much time here. But sure. he uh, he did a lot of study on medieval times and when they just had archers, and those were some amazing archers. But with the invention of gunpowder, all that went away. But if you read some of those old books, um, what they were required to do and how accurate they were. I mean, he he said uh, they had to shoot three arrows at 100 yards, hit the bullseye with each of them, and the other two arrows had to be in the air before the first arrow hit the bullseye. That's oh, how good yeah. they were. Yeah, that was the standard for the, for the archers. So um, he does it. The shots he makes are really cool when he just shoots off without anchor and stuff. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, well, he, he's if you ever if any instinctive archers are out there or tragic or any archers at all, it's an interesting guy to talk to at the shows for sure. Now, going into hunting season here and and habitat in mind, you set up properties, I set up properties. What are some of the top three things people can screw up right off the bat early season? I know you went out and shot a doe. Some guys might say, hey, stay out of the property or I, I also shoot a doe right off the bat. Um, yeah. But like, what are you what are you seeing guys doing or, or what do you think? couple top three things could be that guys could screw up guys or gals could screw up with their property uh right off the bat here getting in there before the season and uh checking your cameras too much mm -hmm. um get in doing um if sneaking around the property instead of going in you got to go in loud and proud if you're doing stuff close to the season you're the guy in the woods with a chainsaw you're not sneaky you're not um trying to be scent free or, or, uh, charge Like if, if I'm doing something, if we're going to put up a stand, I will, and it's late, it got late because of due to whatever mm -hmm. the circumstances are, I guarantee there's going to be a chainsaw running. We're going to be as loud. We're going to get the four wheeler and slam truck doors and make as much noise because of those deer towards the end of the summer, you're just a couple knuckleheads in the woods, cutting down trees. There's absolutely no alarm to it whatsoever. Um, that's what, and then not having the, proper access when you do go in for the opener. I think hunting in the morning um, is a bad idea unless you've got your access dialed in and you know you can get in just right. And then um, after you harvest the deer early, uh, don't get out of the stand and walk right up to it and advertise you all that deer. You got to stay in your stand till it gets dark, get out, go get a four-wheeler, a truck, whatever, drive up to the deer if you can, or go in as loud with flashlights and stuff so the other deer run away. And then they never know what happened. Now, there's no deer on my property. The, the night I shot the doe was opening night, and I had uh, one of my clients uh, was out of town, so asked if I could take his 15-year-old son, never got a deer before. So I put him in a spot, and he had deer all around him, and he shot a nice little uh, scrappy eight-point buck. 
um, pinwheeled it, watched it tip over within 50 yards of the doe that I had shot just before that. And uh, we went in with four wheelers. There's no other deer, no anything happened except what's wrong with those guys. They ran and passed out. Um, We didn't spook any of the rest of the deer. Went in, loaded them up, got out of there, gutted them out, back at the cab. We never got them out in the field. Always back away, either out by the road or or so those are those I think are the biggest mistakes that people make early and push their deer to be nocturnal is by simply getting uh educating the deer right on the front end of the season. Yeah. Um and trying to be trying to be sneaky. I know some of my clients, I don't know if we talked about this in April of 21, but a really good tactic that I'll use for people whose land is remote from their house. So they go up open up the cottage of the camper and all of a sudden there's, there's activity there where there hasn't been. And the deer know that. So um, to fight that, what we'll do is I have them hang a, a radio under their eaves and play it at all times. So there's always constant noise and activity at their cabin, even when they're not there. And so it doesn't instantly alert all the mature deer to just stay in bed and, uh, and move after hours. So that's another thing that works pretty slick for a trick. Did you, I think, I think we may have talked. Did you mention wind chimes? Have you ever used wind chimes too? Some people, I haven't, but some people do use wind chimes just for that constant drone of some kind of, of yeah. noise right there. Um, I, like, I like radio better than listening to a bunch of wind chimes all the time, but radio's Yeah, the wind chimes, yeah. Wind chimes, you can't turn off. When you get there and it's regular noise, you can. You don't have to listen to the radio when you're in the woods. Right. Um and then the the you know a lot of properties while I'm setting up before you have access routes what works really good are if you're by yourself there's there's a number of different methods matter of fact I made notes here just to make sure that I I didn't forget them there's the two in one out um, the loud and then the dust off okay so it's three good tactics right there so I'm hunting by myself Sam hunting my land and what I do is move deeper into it as the leaves drop like all sure. properties that I set up so you hunt the periphery. And as the leaves fall, the deer move in, you move in. Um, I call it the dust off. So say I'm going to hunt tonight, the back of my property, the leaves are down. I would just walk through with my regular clothes on, stop, look at branches, break branches, walk like I'm just a guy walking through the woods. And that just dusts the deer back. They, they're not in panic. Oh, my God, a hunter's coming in. They just like, oh, guy's walking through it. Dust them off. And within about a half hour to 45 minutes, they're right back. So then I just go up, put on my camouflage, slip in, slip up a tree stand. And it works like clockwork. Here they come every single time. And you never educated any of the deer. Now, um, when I sit the other way is you have to go in loud. Like I mentioned, I'm, I may, if we're going into a remote area of a swamp with, uh, say I'm taking one of my hunting partners back in there, we've got areas that there's never, ever human sent back there unless somebody's coming to kill a deer. So all summer, all winter, there's never, spring, Never any human scent in there unless somebody's coming to kill a deer. It's a remote island in a swamp. So we'll just go in as absolutely loud as possible, slam the stand up, cut some branches, trim the trail, and one guy leaves and one guy stays. The deer come in almost within 45 minutes like clockwork to see what those guys do, what was going on here, versus going and doing all that, leaving the stand to cool off. They smell the stand. They smell all the way around. They figure out to avoid the area. Um, If you just do that, there's already a guy in there. And if he doesn't see any deer that night, he can slip out of there or you can come and pick him up. And um, that's that stand is going to be a good stand. So that's a pretty slick tactic. And the other one um, is proven out to my customers this year because I've got about three or four of them sending me pictures 
um, doing just like I explained to you. We're putting up stands. It's getting close to the season. Run the chainsaw, or I'm putting in uh, mock mock brand, uh, mock uh, scrapes, water holes, installing water holes. And uh, with an hour, there's deer there, either working the scrape, raking it with their horns, drinking from the water hole. Um, does come through first. And I said, see how great that works to get delivered by a tractor, get delivered by a four-wheeler, as long as it leaves. Now, that's not to say you can drive your four-wheeler up. To, and this applies more to, to private land, obviously, than public. But that's not to say you can't drive your four-wheeler up to a stand, park it, and think you're going to hunt there. No, it has to leave. It has to be the two-in-one out. And uh, it, it's a it's a slick tactic, and it's, it's proven more and more um, to people are seeing it on camera and on video and through the success. Um, after I explain it to them, the successes that they experience. So um, it's really good, really good tactic. Killed a lot of deer that way. I like that. And that, that dust off method, I haven't heard of that exactly so much. So you're going to, you're going to walk in. Yes. Just like we're sitting here so, right now and, and yep. make some noise, this and that, and then go back, change quick and, and sneak back out there. Absolutely. If I could I carry a stinky cologne, with, yeah, right. I'm just some guy walking out in the woods. If I could carry a, a cologne on a stick with me, I would do it because I'm that guy out in the woods screwing around. Because here's the thing, Jared, that, uh, there's two, I'll break this down in two different ways. One is when I initially get to a property and especially if people have blinds, but even their tree stands, they'll say, we really, we want to hold more deer. We don't have any deer bedding here. And almost every time you get within 75 to 100 yards of their stand, now find a buck bed because those they've they've trained the deer to bed right there and stare at their stand and go, oh, he's here tonight. So I'll just wait till it gets dark and then I'll go and eat. Um, versus, uh, so if you can get in, if you just walk in, that dust him out of that bed, he never sees you crawl up the stand. So it's a, it's a variant of, of uh, here, there are some, there's some famous hunters here um, that hunted down by Milwaukee in the suburban area. And what they would do, well, kind of wildland urban interface areas right around Milwaukee, kids kill some big deer there. Um, they would call it hunt and bump. So carry the stand in, bump the buck out of his bed, put the stand up right then and there, because now I know where he is. And then they'd be back at like three or four in the morning in that stand prior to the buck getting to his stand. So what's the difference is if I walk in before, if my stand's already there, because now I'm on private land and I walk through and bust him out of his bed so he doesn't watch me climb up or that big old doe doesn't anybody doesn't watch me climb up into it and occasionally even when i'll head in a yearling will stand up and just watch you because they're done they won't run away i'll just walk right at it until it does run away um and then go around get your stuff on and climb up in the stand you're all good never educating is what gives you what should make and i tried it on my climbing property it should your land should get better as the season goes not worse Okay, so the neighbors are are not using good access. They're educating their deer. The deer on your property should not even know they're being hunted, um, and your land will start to stack deer into your property. So will you even do that if you're hunting in the far back too? Oh, absolutely. So you'll walk all the way through your farm. Yep. And then come absolutely. back and change and sneak back out and get the stand. Now, right up the gut, not right up the gut. I'll walk up one edge. Okay, yeah. To the very back. Yeah. Cut across the very back of it so that any deer in there are like, get out of here. And then I'll cut up the other side, I'll walk back in, suit up and uh, drop guys off on the stand. I got you. Yeah. So you're, you're any deer that may be watching the access, which that's what they do to your point about going on clients properties and finding beds of watching them come in. I've done it multiple yeah. times, including my own property, the 15 that I sold, I had a buck that was bedded underneath one of my tree stands. 
like yeah. 10 foot off my access trail. I hadn't hunted that stand that year yet, but I had used that access trail. And that SOB knew exactly when I parked my truck, exactly when I sneaked down, no matter how much cover I had. Yeah. He was right there. You almost have I, to hunt those mature bucks. You almost have to hunt them as a different species altogether. I mean, the night I shot the opening night here, I, I filmed a, there was a, like a two and a half year old, a pointer. I filmed, he was like 10 yards from my blind looking the other direction, just begging me to sink an arrow into him. But behind them by, I've got a little apple orchard and the apple tree was a three and a half or four and a half year old eating apples. And I was trying to get video of them, but my phone kept uh, focusing. Uh, it was on autofocus. It was catching weeds in front of it, but behind him was a massive mature bucket. It looked like baseball bat coming out of his head. They were that big around. And he would not step out of the now the, the thick stuff comes right up to the back of the apple tree. He would not step out of that thick stuff. He'd stick his head out, eat an apple, stayed in there. And then it's set up in a corridor with uh like the, there's food and then sorghum and then food and then sorghum. So I have it divided up to take the pressure off the herb. So so it, they all walk down right towards the 15 where I was gonna hunt. That mature buck never stepped out of the cover. He followed where the rest of them walked out, but he stayed in the cover and never stepped out like the two and a half and the three and a half year old. And then there was a bunch of one and a half year olds screwing around and does and fawns and stuff. Um, he never came out of it. And I'm sure he's the guy, those are the guys that bed right there. And it doesn't take along the connected dots. Like bad things happen when somebody's in that stand. I'll just lay right here and watch it. Yeah. Safe. Yeah. So. And it, you just reminded me somebody sometime, I don't know if I interviewed him or listened to him said, you know, if, if a deer is in the brush or, or in any area of mature buck and there's not vegetation, like touching him, like against him, like close, yeah. you know, he won't be there in daylight for a lot right. of time. And, and that, you know, there's all kinds of nuances to that, but it just makes sense that deer move in the cover. And I remember I've, I've seen that happen. Um, mm -hmm. And you mentioned on your Instagram about buck trails and doe trails, which is kind of similar to this this topic here um explain to me what the difference between those are and do you create those yourself or do you just notice uh, the buck trail appears after the well, doe you, yeah well the buck travel corridors i'll i'll create um downwind of the doe curve like all of us do downwind of the of the doe bedding areas but the when you're just scouting property if you're looking to put a camera then uh, uh i'll use this example my brother-in-law was ticked because the area that was a uh, high deer population put a camera he said all all uh does and just a couple small bucks i said put the camera right here and all you can see is one or two broken pieces of grass and just the faintest if you look trail put on it and he picked up like three mature bucks um two two and a half year olds there was the whole the whole group was coming through there but they're not gonna they they sneak down and it wasn't all at once and it wasn't the same day so the doe trails usually when you see like a cow path in the woods those are your doe trails and, and bucks are going to come down those during the rut. Um, no doubt, but early season you're scouting, you want a place to put your camera to see a mature buck, or if you want to set up a stand that you're going to kill a mature buck, stay away from that doe trail, get back on that, that trail. That's going to be 75 to hundred yards behind. And it's going to be just faint. And, um, but those are your buck trails. So I, I like to point those out to clients who are touring the property, the difference between doe trails and buck trails and, and buck trails generally go unnoticed completely yeah and and, you, and they're usually downwind of the main doe travel corridor for for downwind downwind or downhill um okay. you know they like to take those evening thermals just kind of drop down through and that's where they'll that, that's where you'll find them every time you know if you find so if you find that cow path in the woods 
just look at what your predominant wind is and just move down. Sometimes it can be 25 yards. Sometimes you have to go 75 yards. You'll find that faint trail. And that's where the big boy is walking along and he just monitors what's going on up there. And, and how many times when you're hunting, you know, and yeah, that deer is out there, but that one deer, you just wouldn't come out of the thick stuff, you know, and it's always a, a, a monster. It's always the one that you, you don't get a shot at. So. Yep. Nice. Yeah. I think that's a, a good lesson. And maybe the guys who are hunting, setting up on these, these main cow paths, like it might be more beneficial to get a little further off of them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Keep that, especially early season. If you've got a buck that you're after, if you can get set up on the buck trail, you know, cause they only move mature buck only moves about 60 yards from its bed um, between dusk and dark shooting time. So if you get off to the side, uh, set up on one of those, you have a really good chance early. And then obviously when the rut comes and you're hunting, that's different than you and your pinch points and funnels and stuff. Cause they're, they're doing a little differently then in midday, then get back to the downwind side of the bedding areas, uh, rut. And then, uh, you know, late season, you're back on food and, and trying to get in between the does and that buck. Right. So. Have you guys used a Packer Max Cultipacker yet? I know that being the first partner of the Habitat podcast, I've been using one for over five years now guys cult of packing is one of the highest um rated and highly overlooked part of your food plot system it helps maintain soil moisture keeps it in the soil improves seed to soil contact when you press those seeds into the dirt and ensures superior seed germination for all seed types i do not plant a food plot without cult of packing guys packer max and lincoln over there great company great people they have five different culture packers available at packermax.com and they also have a roller crimper combo attachment for the packer max so that's what i use i can crimp i can pack i can do everything with my packer max crimper combo they even came out with a six foot unit at packermax.com guys be sure to utilize this piece of equipment when you're planting food plots to get the best success in your seed germination check them out packermax.com we have a code hpc25 at checkout to save money you mentioned um some pressure on the herd health or herd and uh the way you stack your your food plot set up with the sorghum yeah. talk to me a little bit more about that is that an everyday thing is that just a destination plot yeah. thing what's that like uh, that's a uh so in essence It'll either be in between a destination plot where I want them staged up on my property, or if the destination plot is on my property, then um, I'll divide that up. So you can't have, if you want to hold a lot of deer, you don't want, I'll just use for an egg, like a, a 10 acre open field. Um, you don't want that because that mature doe is going to control the herd. She's going to come back, look at any other deer, pin her ears back, put pressure on them to not come and eat. Um, She's going to be able to, to keep other does from that pressure. She, she goes in heat first, um, late October or mid-October, sometimes early October. Those are the, that false rut people will call it. Some of those big does get bred then already. And additionally, when the rut comes, the buck comes out and he walks, steps out into your 10-acre field. He looks left. He looks right. He's like, I'm out of here. And he's on to your neighbors. Now, if I've got it the way I always divide up those properties, it'll be a, a strip of some form of, of food. Um, usually I'll put a strip of a, a, a perennial, like a clover or alfalfa, and then there'll be a screen 
And then there'll be your summer, your treats, uh, maybe at least some summer food for them. And then, uh, which will get drilled back into to rye and winter peas and stuff. And then there'll be another screen and some more food. So when that buck comes out, and this could, and this might be bedrooms. Sometimes it's strips, sometimes it's bedrooms. It depends on the property. So the buck comes out, and now he has to look. He looks over here, and he's got to go into that little pocket. He's got to check it. He might make a scrape. I might have a rub tree in there. Now he's got to go through the screen. He's got to check over here, and he's got to check over here, and he's got to check over there before he leaves your property. It's dark. Okay, he only moves from his bed a little way, so it's dark. So all the shot opportunities were on you. Your neighbors get nighttime pictures of them. Yep. Additionally, I can have a doe family here. You can have a doe family here. You can have a doe, lot of doe families on your property that um, aren't getting pressure just from one deer. So it takes the, the pressure off of your herd. Um, and you can see it works so well so many times. Um, if you're sitting on a big open field, the, the, the things you see deer do versus sitting on one that I have divided up. I had last year and I filmed it. I had a, a wonderful hunt. Well, it was the night I shot that mature buck. The uh, I was actually was just going to harvest a doe that night, and a couple of small bucks came out, um, crossed over this, crossed through the first food plot into the second. Then a doe and some fawns came out. The fawns eating an apple under one of the apple trees, and a raccoon comes up, takes the apple from the fawn, and it, it was just like I'm telling mom. Runs over the fawn, runs by its mom. The mom comes back, kicks the raccoon off. This is all on video. Kicks the raccoon off. Fawn starts eating the apple again. I see the whole apple tree shaking. The raccoon went up and shook another apple down. So now they're happy. They're, the fawn and the raccoon are eating right next to each other. The doe's eating. The bucks are bedded out on the other side of the of the screen. The, the two bucks that's bedded down are eating. Well, all of a sudden, then some more does came out and some more action. And all of a sudden, everybody went dark. Everybody's looking, staring back in the weeds. And I was like, well, I'm, I'm going to wait here and just see what happens. Well, typical of a mature buck. He doesn't walk out where all the other bucks and does did. He stays in the thick stuff, takes a left. He stays downwind of everybody, and he's just cutting around like this, smelling everybody downwind. They're all staring, and the only problem was the boogeyman was downwind of him yet. And that old 1972 recurve took him right through the lungs, and uh, I watched him tip over in the in the soybean destination field. So that's that's an example. That was a great hunt, but that's an example where. Those does may not even have came out if those two young bucks were right there. We're going to chase them around and terrorize them. They don't like that. So that's where you, um, people will say the October lull. That's how you cure the October lull. Those does don't like to move till dark because all those little guys uh, are terrorizing them and uh, chasing around. So by breaking up like that, you can hold more deer and take away your October lull. That's a huge tip. And and I mean, I've, I've heard of compartmentalizing fields and, and properties even um, I, I do agree with that when you're this, this particular plot or spot you're talking about in your hunt, um, I guess first, how are you set up with the wind, uh, where uh, you know, he was sent checking the field, but you were yet downwind to him yet. You can see yeah. the field and you can see, like, tell me about your setup on that real quick. And then I have another so behind me. Luckily behind me is wide open egg field. Okay. And I'm on my fence line. So he, he couldn't get any farther out and it's yeah. thick. I got trees down the fence line. I got trees and nasty stuff and a little bit of snow fence. So they don't want to cut through there anyhow. So my back is up against no man's land. So right. the, as far downwind as he can get, he's going to cut past me. Um, Perfect. And then the, you know, that was for, that would work for a Southeast, Southwest, due South wind. And then I've got the same situation on the other side for, and for any winds, those same wind directions, only Northeast, Northwest or due North. So jump on either side of the field because the, the mature deer want to come 
downwind or curl in anyhow. So it's a good setup. But I have, uh, I had a client, I still have this client um, in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. And uh, he had a 12 acre open field. He called me, they had never, he had a different guy in there that planted, nothing grew. Um, he called me in. Uh, so I divided that field up and I compartmentalized. There's a whole thing out of my Instagram. And he he ended up three bucks at the taxidermist that year from going from zero deer ever harvested to three in the taxidermist. And he was just as happy and ecstatic as could be. And and every year, every year they're killing deer now. They're passing deer. Uh, they're shooting big deer. And uh, we had a lot of dead ash and they're worried about or what? No, I put some chestnut trees in and uh, the dad, the, the old grandpa, he wanted more. And I found some a, a good place for him. So I, I texted him. I said, hey, I found some more chestnut trees. Your dad will be happy. And he sends me back a picture of his dad with a great big buck. He goes, he's already happy after last <laughs> night. I'm like, all right, you did it again. So that's the fun. Those are all the fun things, you know. Uh, but this drought, I'll tell you what, this drought caused a lot of stress. It takes the fun out of it when you plant something and it doesn't grow and it doesn't rain. It really, it kills you. And then I put so much seed in the ground this year because they say it's going to rain and you run out there and plant or you fertilize or you do something and it dissipates. It just doesn't rain. It drives you crazy. So, so you reminded me of a question I was going to ask, which is still related to, to the, how you break up this, this field, either your field or, or for the client. How are you? I guess if, if I'm a kid with a piece of paper, you know, and a, and a crayon, show me exactly how you would compartmentalize that field with the, the sorghum in your different crops. And then with the drought, did all that stuff grow come up? Is your sorghum coming up? I mean, with the drought. Well, I'm lucky because what I had to do, so in sand areas, no. And I switch in those areas. So what I normally do is I'll put in a sorghum, I use a sorghum blend uh, screen. It's got sun hemp, short sorghum, medium sorghum, and tall sorghum. So it stands up. Like the Sears Tower is built, you know, three different heights. So it stands up. Yeah. Um, normally I'll put that screen in first until i get it dialed in like oh i guess we got to go a little tighter or i wish it was out a little farther then after we've established where we want it i'll replace that with miscanthus and switchgrass um and then but for the first two or three years i'll still put the sorghum in because until the switch and the and the miscanthus um matures fully so uh how would i divide it up okay the client i have in uh west of or no uh, southeast of my house they had a great big bean field that they lease out to the farmer um there's no there was no good way to get to their hunting portion that they do which is a mix of a of a swampy part swamp part uh normal uh hardwoods mix of oak ash linden basswood all that stuff no way to get to it. So we doubled up the fence line. It was a, a thick, brushy fence line, took a forestry mulcher and a chainsaw down the middle of it. So now you can drive through that fence line like a tractor trail. Then I came off about 60 yards off of the field and running east to west, put a six-foot strip of sorghum, left six feet, and put a six-foot six strip of sorghum inside of there next to the woods with overhanging branches um, I've got clover coming out about 20 yards. And then inside of that, we left it all summer long because deer love dirt. They love to play in dirt. They get some out of the bugs. They can see each other during the social aspect of the summer. So we left the, the rest of it just in dirt. And it was just pounded with tracks all summer long. They love hanging out in there. 
And then luckily, that's a low area that I'm nervous about ever putting switch or miscanthus in because normally that would, would be a really wet part of that field. But because of the drought, we got just enough rains that the sorghum grew beautifully. And so, so that set up, it did, it's got two things. And if you saw this, anybody would pay a fortune for this to sit in this setup, just to hunt it, just to hunt it during the season. So the reason there's the gap in between the two sorghums is you can come up the, the double fence row and then walk up that gap to access stands anywhere along that wood line. Wow. So it's a tunnel basically to tunnel to your stands on there. Additionally, on the one end of it is a stump line set up. So you can come up the tunnel, crawl up the stump line, and, and look down a strip of the clover. And now it's winter peas, lupines, um, high sugar oats, uh, and a whole variety of, of uh, sugar beets and radishes and all that stuff is in the part that was dirt all summer long. It's just beautiful, all those things that'll take them through the winter now. And the deer sage up in there because the rest of it is all soybeans. The soybeans are just getting mowed down right now um, by the deer. So, uh, you know, it's just a great, the deer come out, got a little, little hook in it there so that they feel comfortable. Um, they move out through the sorghum, room for different families of deer. Plus, it's going to be a great, the, the bucks will stage up there after the do, does move through to clear it. Bucks will stage up in there. Should be great for the gun season out of that stump line. And you've got great access um, for all of the, for all the bow stands that are along that edge. So th that's where you want to just take a part of a big egg field. The other example that I gave you, um, it, it, it's hard to explain it, but it was complicated because it was a hill in the middle of the field and went down both ways. So the middle was what I used for access to get to the backside of it. So that was sorghum that they could walk through. And then we dropped down the edges of sorghum. And then I basically made uh, bedrooms that were V-shaped with stands for their gun stands um, around that, that field. So they wouldn't shoot at each other. And then inside of those V's were just strips of sugar beet, radish, lupine, uh, oats, you know, different, a variety of different seeds. And it just worked really good. The deer felt comfortable. They could hold multiple deer. They had daylight movement because they felt comfortable being out there and not exposed. And the access made it where they could get through without being seen and get up into their stands and look down into it. Um, so it was a nice setup. So explain to me how how the access work again on that? Walking in between the sorghum. And right through the middle of the field? Yep, right through the middle of the field. Yep. Wow, no kidding. Yeah. You think the deer are down off each side in the woods yep. watching the field? Well, this well, no, this field, we actually started to get deer to bed right in the field and in, in the, wow. the thicker sorghum on the bottom edges of it and stuff. But yeah, and then it, that did block and they did come out. As a matter of fact, this guy teases me about this to this day because... When I was setting it up, or no, I'd set up the final tour, and I pointed out at him, his dad, uh, one of his workers, and I said, so the deer, they should come out in this corner down here, and a doe walked out as I pointed at it, and he goes, all right, come on, you got your hired hand, and they're releasing a deer, right? And, uh, <laughs> it was just funny how uh, you couldn't have timed it out any better. I like so. that. That's some awesome, awesome tips on how to, you know, make lemonade out of out of lemons when you you're dealt with a, a bad setup or or a, yeah. just a challenging property right guys normally call in and call for help because something's not working and these are some solutions to those types of problems that maybe a little bit yeah. more out of the box thinking yeah they work good you to use the temporary screening is always, like a lot of times guys will say well we want trees and this is what i did i'm slowly converting the middle of that field over into 
trees. They wanted more trees and, and shrubs are actually more important than trees. So as I'm doing this, I'm also in the spring, there's a bunch, there's a chestnut orchard. Now there's an apple orchard. Now there's a bunch of, uh, of other trees that are up and coming and I'm putting them in, in stages. I didn't want to just go in and they didn't want, I gave them the option. I come with a tree planter and we'll plant this whole thing, but I don't like that look. I like a more natural look. So as we're, we still divide that up in those bedrooms, but at, now I've added switchgrass and miscanthus instead of the sorghum because it's been years in the progress. And now it's slowly converting into a woods on the top with uh, apple orchards and chestnut orchards. And uh, it's really, it's a fun project. It's a cool project. That'll be, uh, long after I'm gone, that'll be a, a really nice hunting hunting parcel. And, and uh, that's a good, people have to keep that in mind though to divide it up. You don't always need to go with shrubs and trees right away. And as a matter of fact, I think you're better off using screens, temporary screens, annual screens, until you get it dialed in to exactly where you want it. Okay, now let's bring in miscanthus and switchgrass so we yep. can do some stuff like that. So I couldn't agree more. Um, I've, I've done that same practice. I, I would go the sorghum screen and then I'd plant like miscanthus or switch inside that screen. Are you running them over top of each other or are you running no. them side by side when you when you yeah. transition over to Miscanthus and switch? When I transfer over, I put the switch to the inside of it. So I, I don't I don't put them in the same spot so that each gets full sun. Mm -hmm. And uh, it gets the switch in the, in the Miscanthus a little quicker than if I put the sorghum in at the same time. The sorghum kind of shades it a little bit or competes a little bit. I see um, Jake does that um, yeah. sometimes. I see he'll he'll mix it together. And that's that's a good tactic if you're not, you know, after a property's matured and you've done a lot of work, then there's nothing wrong with that. But I'm talking first blush. I want deer. I need something right now. We're going to divide this up. That's how um, you want how I do it. Now, after you've worked in a property, and, oh, we're going to add this little bit here. Then by all means, you can get away with like a sorghum switch combination. I like that. And that that example you mentioned where you're accessing through the middle of the field do you have any challenges getting out at night coming back through there if the deer are kind of moving into that field yeah i just tell the people simply um get picked up by a four-wheeler tractor yep got that's it. your best bet that's always still your best bet um i do it to this day uh, if i'm pinned and i have to get out of there and i don't want to wait till the deer walk away simply text my wife she drives up flashes the lights beeps the horn Deer luck, they run away. I jump down, go jump and take off. Um, otherwise, whip in with a, when the kids were still here, whip in with a four wheeler, dust the deer off. I jump on the floor, it drives away. Deer just think, oh, stupid four wheelers in here again. <laughs> Have you ever used a, a coyote call, electronic coyote call, or manual coyote call, anything like that? Uh, yeah. I've heard of guys doing well, that. I, yeah. Um, uh, my nephew, <laughs> my oh. nephew texted me just he was hunting by himself at my brother-in-law's land and he says hey i'm pinned in a i'm pinned in a tree and i got to get out of here so did you kyle call on your phone so you just go google kyle call on phone turned up the volume the deer took off he jumped out of there i don't that's not the best method but it's a method i wouldn't do that every single time <laughs> um but in a pinch yeah, yeah it worked yeah that, that's yeah. a method i i just don't think i'm getting my wife to drive a half hour, <laughs> yeah. hour out there honking the horn this and that so i gotta I'd be a little more creative so yeah some you know some people will have um some people will have i think jim ward told me this uh off way away from their stand they'll tie a rope to a bag of like aluminum cans ah. and then they that so when the deer are there they're in a situation i've always kept it as a matter of fact i got one client where 
I was very tempted to set this up and then just pull that rope and bang the cans. It's not where they're standing. So it scares the living daylights out of them. Away they go, book down quick to go out. And, and when they come back, all they're going to do is go over and smell where the cans were. And uh, one cycle of darkness, you know, they'll get down one of it, then it'll come smuggle. That's odd that this thing jumped around and gone about their business. Good points. Good points. Good I mean, more moral of the whole story is don't let them know you're there, right? Like, right. it seems obvious, but at the same time, details are what kill these bigger deer. And if you're just, you do all this work and then you blow off a certain detail, I mean, it's all for nothing. Yeah, yeah. and sometimes you have to just, um, you have to keep this in mind. So I, re- I coyote trapped for a long time and coyotes, they run a, a 15 mile range and you got to get them to walk through an eight inch loop on a snare or step on a three inch pan. So you really have to learn animal behavior and animal movement. And so there's a lot of guys that set up their trap lines that try to be completely stealth, right? I'm gonna leave no scent here except for the coyote scent and, and a little bit of blood. There's a lot of guys that are even more effective. They take their dog with them and maybe a couple kids with them on a the stand. Now it's just on the stand, on the trap line. So they're setting up their traps. The dogs are all peeing on everything. It's a guy walking. Now the coyote comes through and goes, oh, there was a human here. Oh, and it was a guy walking a dog. I mean, they're they're registering the scent in their brains. They don't have the ability to reason, but think of it from a coyote's perspective. He's um, a faint human scent, and all of a sudden there's that, and you've seen your buddies get trapped. Now, oh, a dog was peeing. It was a guy and a kid walking through the woods here. Oh, what's this? A little bit of food they left, and next thing you know, they step on the pan. So sometimes more is less. Yep. Yep. I like that. You get dropped off by a tractor, get dropped off by a four-wheeler, run a chainsaw. A lot of times those are your best tactics. Yeah. I got, I got one of my Exodus cameras that tipped over on a tree and is pointing at the ground right now. And it's 11 days before season. I'm like, son of a gun. I gotta go fix that thing. I'm going to just drive the quad, hit, hit some extra grains out on the clover plots, maybe a little fertilizer if I need to. And uh, start up a chainsaw, quad, trim a branch. Yep and get the heck out of there so that that's very helpful have you ever done anything with electric bikes or or e-bikes well i'll um, tell you what um so one of my customers said that he goes to a, up in a buffalo county and that they go out to their four-wheelers on uh on electric utvs they go out at night with red lights or in the dark before the season with red lights on them and i found it interesting because the guys that i know they have e-bikes if you come around a corner on an e-bike and a deer sees you you scare the living heck out of those deer. Is that right? You're better off cracking along, breaking branches and making noise. Because if they if they see that e-bike come around a corner and there was no scent and as fast as you're moving, it blows their minds. They're running to the next county. You're not going to just dust them off and they're going to be back. Um, so I... So the e-bikes are nice to give you a boost to get up in there, but I don't know if you have to go like when we were kids and put a card on the wheel so it goes click, 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 because <laughs> you actually hear you coming. Uh, maybe pull it off when you get close or maybe take it a portion of the way and then and march in the rest of the way. But that's, I haven't personally used one. I do ride my bike back to certain stands of mine where I go up my neighbor's driveway. Um, but it's just a pedal bike. I, I wouldn't need a, a electric one for that. But uh, that's what, I, what I've heard. Um, with electric bites and some of my customers that have experienced. I'm thinking about get, maybe get one of those little bells on there. Did ding, did ding, you know, like, you yeah, got there you go. Bikes, so you're going yep. through the woods. Just let them yeah. Know. yeah. That's, that's interesting. Um, this is, this is awesome. So far, Todd, I have a couple more things here. I saw you had a dozer in the woods. I mean, you've had a dozer in the woods multiple times, but you're creating some access and maybe it was food plots. What are you, how are you getting a lot of the work done? And this is me asking because maybe I have a project in mind myself. How are you getting a lot of the work done 
on properties that are fully timber and you're trying to put in food, you're trying to put in access. Um, what's the most efficient way to get some of this stuff done? Are you getting dozers? Are you getting excavators? Are you all of the above dozers, excavators, and forestry mulchers? It just okay. depends on it depends on the size of the trees that you're dealing with. You know, I've got a grapple on the front of my tractor, a 75 horse tractor. If I can get in there, a lot of times I can move the stuff around myself, but a tractor is not a for you know, it's it's good for a lot of things, but it's not like perfect for doing that kind of stuff where a skid steer can move around a lot better and tracks. And then sometimes you just flat out need a dozer because of the size of the stumps and the rocks and the boulders. So whatever piece of equipment I need, it's really job dependent on, on what it is. And sometimes, you know, knocking the trees down with a chainsaw and leaving the stumps in your food plot don't doesn't hurt anything. You can plant around them. You're just not going to bring equipment in to plant around them, but you can do the spray with Roundup and topsoil and uh, maybe eventually have somebody come in with a stump grinder, get rid of them. They're, um, but they don't they don't hurt anything. You just cut them low. But usually, like all property plans, you try to get access around the whole property. And sometimes that's going to require a bulldozer. Sometimes if I'm going through a marsh, I use that geo grid to lay down um, so that you can, you know, get through when the wet times come back or even just after it thaws in the spring. So you can get back in there, get access to back portions of your property. And you know, there's so many cases that you run into where people literally are not using or not getting the effective use out of 20 or 15, 20, 40, sometimes 80 acres of their property because they just don't have good access or it's it's mature timber or they can't get to it. And by spending what it costs to bring in a dozer for a day, or uh, I've also used a you know an excavator or a forestry mulcher, even if it's in there for a week versus buying 80 acres that are accessible it's minuscule. The cost is minuscule in comparison. So um, that's you just bring the equipment in and get it done. That's a great point. And you're, you're forcing equity on that parcel at that time too. So you're, you're, you're getting return on your dollar by, by spending that um, you know, to, to the next person or, or whomever wants to use that access. Now they have a way around. And I think, uh, yeah, I've done most of the things so far by hand and small equipment, ATV. So now I'm, yeah. I've done it the hard way if you will now i'm i'm starting to think a little a little bit more efficient with my time and realize that hey maybe just get the dozer for the day and pay the yeah money. sometimes it, it really is especially when you get as as busy as a guy can get there's so much there's only so much you can do yeah um just one or two guys working and you can do a lot um and i'm not discouraging you know people that are rolling their own doing their own property from doing it because it can be fun projects if you're not in a hurry but when you're hired to come in and, and put deer in front of you if you're getting paid to put deer in front of people, um, you have to put deer in front of people. And sometimes that means you're going to hire a cat or an excavator or something and get the project done and, and get on to the next part of the project that you want to, that you have to accomplish. So I'd agree. And when you're, when you've, uh, when you're building some of this infrastructure on these parcels, are you, have you ever had to put in a small, a small bridge or a, a culvert and and maybe oh, a small absolutely. bridge? Um, I got to build two and I'm, I'm not sure the best, route here i can't get too crazy because it's conservancy ground so i have to follow some rules um yeah i think they're they're gonna allow me to use a culvert and some crane mats uh any any ideas on on good bridges for for yeah, uh, depending on how far you're going usually the drainage ditches couple of those plastic culverts from menards they make them in different sizes and they come in 20 foot lengths so cut them in half you got two nice 10 foot things that you can lay whatever you want to lay over the top of them if you can I'll use, I'll dump some gravel if it's, 
in a sensitive area that you're not allowed to do that might be some geo grid over it and let the grass come up through it and lay it down. Um, otherwise it might be two telephone poles with, with, uh, laid across it with screwing boards down to the telephone poles. Yep. There's just a number of different ways. And if you can, um, I always try to make them so that they would be, did you use them with a four wheeler or in the few, always, so you're looking at a property for today, we always have to look like 15 years from now, what's this going to look like in 15 years, 20 years from now, this guy's grandchildren. So it might be, they're going to have equipment that they want to get in here and equipment gets bigger and smaller. So maybe now is the time that I want to build it sturdy enough that 10 years from now, they can get a piece of equipment in here and dig a big pond or they can whatever, you know, every situation is different. I got it. No, I appreciate that. Anything that you're seeing in the social media world these days or through your network of habitat managers, um, kind of, kind of trending any habitat trends that you're seeing now that eat good, bad or ugly. Um, I know a lot of this stuff is tried and true and really don't have to invent the wheel, reinvent the wheel on a lot of this stuff. Um, you know, guys like you've been doing this stuff for a long time. Are, are you seeing anything that jumps out that, you know, good, better, ugly might be something to pay attention to? Um, that, you know, I, I have, I've been so busy that I have a difficult time even, uh, looking on social media at other guys. stuff. Um, so I, I haven't, I, I haven't paid that much attention. I know that there's the guys that are making more money off YouTube than actually doing it, that they always, they're always put like, it's a dough factory. You don't want doughs or they'll put. You know, I don't even hinge cut, hinge cut, hinge cut. Oh, I don't even hinge cut anymore. Hinge cutting is bad. They're always trying to be, you know, the the opposite of what what the trend is. And uh, you got to kind of take that for a grain of salt and and stick with the your basics of land management and 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 realize is this guy making money off YouTube and trying to lure you in to more stuff, or is he a guy that's actually out in the woods doing it? Like Jim Ward is a really good guy to watch. I mean, Jim's been doing it for so long. And he's goes back to the same customers for so long. So he sees what works and what doesn't. And he's not afraid to say, you know, 15 years ago, I did this and we found out that that's not working as good. This works better. Um, so he's a really good guy. If anybody's going to follow Jim Ward's Whitetail Habitat Solutions, he's he's got YouTube videos out now with uh, a, a guy. I don't know if it used to be his partner or what, but he's starting to put YouTube videos up again. But even his old stuff, really good stuff. He'd be a good guy to have on your show if you can get him out or Jim. Or maybe you've had them already. Um, I've done a couple projects with him uh, when he comes through Wisconsin and stuff. And uh, that, that guy, he's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, I'll, um, I'll, I think we it was episode 200. We had Jim on. I'll send it to okay. you when we're done. It was, it was a yeah. back episode. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's, he's a fun guy to work with, too. He's such a down-to-earth, decent guy. And uh, this is a fun guy to spend a day in the woods with working. Um, but that, uh, I, f I forgot, that was leading me to uh, something else when you asked about trends. Oh, got one thing that I see that people have to pay more attention to is uh, your invasives. You really have to get on your invasive species. Now, I did a consult for a guy, and I told him, you got to get rid of this reed canary. It's starting to smother out your the rest of your wood, your uh, marsh, your dogwood and stuff. He had another consultant come in and tell him, don't worry about it. And then he had Jim Ward come in. This guy did a lot of money. He was hiring everybody. He wanted everybody's opinion. Jim said, you better, I agree with Todd, you better get on that canary. You're going to have a moonscape out there of nothing. And then I saw a guy the other day posted a YouTube video. He did a, cons a consult uh, and, the, and he went back to visit the client property. And the client was happy and it was really, a lot of the stuff worked out good, but I could see giant hogweed 
and wild parsnip in, and the guy's touching it. That's one of the most toxic plants in the world, other than water hemlock. And that's what I'm battling on a number of properties. First, first and foremost, so I go in and I look at my first blush. I look for those dangerous invasives, and that's first priority number one. Is you got your rid of those? Because if a guy's tracking a deer at night and that stuff, you're gonna be in trouble. So, yeah. uh, but I saw the guy walking right through it, both of them. It was dormant now, dead this time of the year. So it's not, but uh, that would be like holy smokes. This oh, I think I know what good... video you're talking about. Yeah, I think I know which yeah. one you're talking about. Yeah, the giant hogweed. Uh, wild parsnip they they're they're photosensitive so they get the oil gets on you and then when the sun hits it but i mean third degree burns permanent blindness serious stuff and i mean they get 10 to 12 feet tall so um very very serious stuff usually near wet areas so if you can't recognize that 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 and that's another reason to have a consultant comes in because you're gonna look through and see stuff that you don't that you don't see you know point out those things even if that's all you get out of it you'll know a good starting point right there that yeah, I've got some bad invasives here that I don't want to, that we have to deal with. I mean, so. you you hit the nail on the head, and I'm not surprised. Um, a lot of the guys who call us either have the equipment, have the property, and just have an idea. And then when you're done walking with them, they're like, all right, great. That's exactly what I wanted to hear. I learned some stuff, and now I now I feel confident with this plan. Or you got guys who you walk through the woods, and, and like you said, we're seeing stuff that might be obvious to us, but may not be obvious to them. Right. So invasives buck beds, um, buck trails, you know, yep. whatever. It's mm -hmm. it's just having that trained eye or, or extra woodsmanship from being out in the woods more more so than some others sometimes. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think you had you know, a lot of the people are, are, so a lot of the people like you mentioned don't see that stuff. They're really good hunters. For sure. Um, maybe they've been hunting public land and now they've got uh, private land and they're going to hunt it like it's public. Okay, we got to get as deep in as we can. We got to put a stand in the middle. So no, no. This is private now. You can hunt the periphery. Those are your deer in the middle. You're going to have an area that you don't go into. And but, oh, okay. So not to say that they're bad hunters. Um, they just haven't had the experience of owning their own property, or maybe they've owned the property's been in the family forever and they've hunted it like their great grandpa did. Mm. And those are those are fun ones because normally what happens, you got you show up there and there's the old grumpy guy that's been like, I've been hunting here forever, and this is the way we do it. And this guy's not going to tell me anything. And you got the kids that talk to him. Come on, we got it. We're going to just bring somebody in. We can do better. And by the end of your walk, every time the old grumpy guy's the guy getting his wallet. Up. Well, that makes sense. He's the one that wants to hire you and, and wants to pay the most because it was like, holy crap, we didn't know how good our property was and how much potential we had here and see it in a different light. And that's always fun. I always kind of get a kick out of that. Uh, well, yeah, it's it's like the the old uh, the old grumpy guy or or the the guy who's been hunting there forever, walking up the the center of the property or whatever. He's not on YouTube. He's not listening to the podcast. He's not doing things. So it's yeah. always the younger generation that I've, I I guess exactly yeah. yeah. Well, I don't know if we're gonna be able to convince Uncle Joe over here. So you know, be ready for that when you come out. Like, all right, that's fine. Yeah, you know? yeah. That's why I always ask him like, who's hunting the property? Who like I don't. I'm not always like who owns a property, but kind of like who's driving the bus. Yeah. You know, who do we have to convince? Who do we have to show? You know, because sometimes the younger people who are paying more attention um, due to just technology uh, may not be able to convince, you know, old dog, new trick type thing. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a really good point right there. That They're exposed to the YouTube and that stuff where the older guys aren't. And then after you get boots on the ground, then the, the older guys are like, holy smokes, this is great. Yeah. And it's usually, it always boils down to, um, by the time a guy can get enough money to hire a consultant, 
it's the that middle-aged guy and it's all about uh grandpas and children yeah. you know i don't i don't care with me anymore but i want my dad to get one i want the dads to get it and i want my kids to get them you know they're writing the check but it's all about grandpas and grandchildren so it's fun it's really fun i love it todd i have uh, a little set of rapid fire questions for you we started asking people uh if you're ready i'm gonna hit them and then we'll we'll wrap this up okay i'll give my best shot no problem all right. What is your favorite beverage these days? Seltzer water. Nice. Your favorite. Normally, you do favorite wild game recipe, favorite venison recipe. But how about this? Those those snack sticks that you make for gun season. What flavor are those? Jalapeno and cheddar cheese. Perfect. That would have been my answer. Are you running fixed blade or mechanical broadheads these days? Fixed blade, single bevel. Nice. Which ones? Uh, woods. Are they woodsman or uh, one of the traditional ones? I can't think of the okay. name of it now because I keep sure. sharp. And then using the same one, I haven't I haven't bought them for so long. Uh, they're Grizzly or Woodsman, one of those. Yeah, gotcha, gotcha, perfect. Um, on your on your farm, do you normally hunt preset stands, blinds, or do you mobile hunt at all? Preset and blinds, occasionally mobile hunt, just for fun. Yeah, I'm starting to really see the value in blinds the more I do this, and I hate hunting out of them, but um, man, yeah. they're just valuable. Yeah, they're they're very valuable. You got to keep in mind, you got to shoot low because. Uh, you want a hole in the bottom of the deer um, because yeah. when they run away, you don't get to see which direction they're going more than a couple bounds. So you sure. need that blood flow right away because you have no idea right, left, or where it went. So, and it has to be a pass through and it has to be in the bottom third of the deer. So you get blood right away. Makes sense. A little trick there for ground blind hunters. <laughs> yeah. Uh, food, water, or cover? What do you think is most important? If you had to pick cover, up, cover. like it. Um, your favorite habitat tool or implement that you're using these days? Water holes. Oh, nice. And we may have asked you this before. I honestly don't remember your favorite tree. Did we ask you that before? Yeah, hickory. I think we did. I think we did. Okay. Yeah, hickory. Well, sir, you passed with flying colors. I appreciate well, you. your time today. Is there anything else that we didn't hit that you wanna you wanna cover? Um, feel free to plug anything you got going. I know you're you're busy and not taking clients, but um. I really enjoyed our chat and catching up. It's been too long. Yeah, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for having me on. And no, I'm just, uh, I think we covered a lot. We'll save some for the next time in a couple of years from now. We'll get back around to me. We'll be faster <laughs> than that. We'll be faster than that. That'd be awesome. Well, it was nice chatting with you. And and uh, good luck, everybody. Have a safe hunting season for guys out there. Thanks, Todd. You too. Take care, Jared. Thank you very much for listening to the Habitat Podcast. Guys, we will be back with another great episode next week. I just want to say once again, how grateful we are for the listenership we have and the the loyal listeners you guys have been and supporters of the podcast. For those of you who want to support further, we have free decals being sent out to those who leave us great reviews. Scroll down, hit the link to leave a great review, and then email me info at habitatpodcast.com. I'll get you a free five-inch decal in the mail right away. Guys, I want to thank our sponsors, Vitalize Seed Company at vitalizeseed.com. Exodus Outdoor Gear, Packer Max Cultipackers, Morse Nursery, Acres.com, Downburst Cedars, First Light, United Country Midwest Lifestyle Properties. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in once again. Get back with us soon. We're going to have another great episode for you as we become better habitat managers.